This is an ABC podcast. World Pride is here, it's queer and it's fabulous. Australia is hosting the festival this year with tens of thousands of people celebrating on Gadigal land across the next fortnight and across the ABC. The 2023 theme is Gather, Dream and amplify and queer scientists are going to be doing plenty of that here on Science Friction and on stage at World Pride's Evening with 500 Queers in Science event happening this week. I'm going to be presenting a little bit about the Australian orchids and just what makes them so wild and also what makes orchids probably the queerest flower in my opinion. And queer botanical scientists will be out in their full flowering force. I know Irving will probably have his own opinions about... <laughs> of course yeah. I disagree. Oh, I have so many examples, but <laughs> I, I would probably say all of them. Every single one of the flowers in the world are so queer. They're so different from anything else that we could ever imagine. But that word orchid itself is derived from the Greek word for testicles. Ah, on behalf of their underground tubers that look sort of suggestive. But then also, like, look at all the Georgia O'Keeffe paintings. They're such a yonic flower as well. Natasha Mitchell with you on Science Friction this week. Love your nature with opera singer turned PhD student in botanical science, Ryan O'Donnell from the Australian National University and Dr Hervé Soquet, a botanist at the Royal Botanical Gardens, Sydney, which is host to the 500 Queers in Science evenings. The botanists are in the house. Thank you so much for joining me and happy World Pride. Happy World Pride. Ryan, you didn't actually begin in science at all. You became an opera singer, which is obviously a natural pathway into science. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan did their first degree in film, but was a big fan of musical theatre and eventually landed at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, building a career as an opera singer and touring with Opera Australia. But something was niggling at Ryan's soul. Yeah, I did an amateur production of Little Shop of Horrors at one stage. Which, if you've seen that classic 1980s film adaptation, stars a sentient, blood-sucking, carnivorous plant... Given sunlight, I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy, unless I open a vein. It sort of reminded me that, oh yeah, carnivorous plants, because I used to grow them as a kid. I was a really sciencey kid, and that was all I was interested in as a kid. Performing in Little Shop of Horrors reminded Ryan of their childhood curiosity about all things science. But high school happened, and we had a really less than brilliant science and maths department and it just totally turned me off so I wound up becoming the English music drama kid. But that production prompted Ryan to order a carnivorous plant and from there Ryan kind of became obsessed with everything to do with these extraordinary flesh-eating plants their care, their science their evolution and before Ryan knew it. After a while I sort of realised that I cared a bit more about nature than I did about singing, so decided to commit to it full time. So was that a big decision to walk away from a professional opera career? Yeah, I think it's a huge thing. Like, I think opera is a profession that is rife with sacrifice. Yeah, I think it's just a lifestyle that requires an incredible amount of sacrifice. I don't think that I loved it enough to commit Mm. to that. Hervé, flowering plants are your passion as a botanist, and I can understand the seduction, big, 
flowering plant fan. I mean, they're beautiful, but why do they interest you scientifically? There's a big problem that you're trying to solve. There's still a lot that we don't understand. And that's become really my drive and passion, trying to understand where flowering plants came from, how old they are. How old they are? I can't tell you. Yeah, because you're interested <laughs> in pacing... 140 to 270 million years. You're, you're trying to estimate. trace the genetics back to the, the very first ancestral flower, effectively, aren't you? Which is such a fascinating thing to consider. Like, where did flowering plants begin and why? We're only starting to scratch the surface of what happened millions and millions of years ago when the first flowers started to bloom and to cover the world pretty quickly. So that's my passion at the moment. There's another fascinating aspect to your work, and that is that 90% of flowering plants or thereabouts are bisexual. So what does that mean for a plant? That means that uh, the vast majority of plants and flowering plants in particular have both sexes in the same organs. So their reproductive structures, which we call flowers, are typically bisexual. They have both male and female bits. The, the male bits are called the stamens. The female bits are called the carpels or the pistils. And they're typically located together. So we call them bisexual or herma, hermaphroditic flowers. Whereas plants that are unisexual, Often they tend to present female and, uh, and male organs uh, very differently. And so for the pollinators, it's a much harder job. It's you have to go to two different kinds of things. We would love to know exactly what was pollinating the ancestral flower. We think yeah, we have a little bit of an idea, but we don't know exactly what. There probably wasn't any nectar. Probably the reward was some kind of food. Perhaps the ancestral pollinator was eating the flower, but even this we're not sure about. But my passion is putting all that together. And every time I look at a particular flower that I didn't know, I just realize how diverse the world is. Yeah, I mean, the world of botany is just is a delight to me. Ryan, you study an enormous family of flowering plants, orchids, but also fungi. Fungi challenge binaries too, don't they? How? Oh, in so many ways. Like for those of you who don't know, they're not actually plants. They're actually more closely related to animals, but they're somewhere in between almost. So they're challenging that binary there already, but also in their conception of what is, you know, a binary sex system as well. Oftentimes in fungi, that's just not a thing in that there are some fungi out there like Schizophyllum communae that can have as many as, you know, 23 to 29,000 different sexes hey. or mating types, which is wild. 29,000. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And, and I mean, I, I do wonder, plants are not animals, but although fungi are kind of somewhere in between the two, but do, do both of you take inspiration from nature when you think about the way we apply binaries to the world, to humans, to gender, to sexuality? You know, what, what does the story of the wider natural world offer us about the human story? I think it's something that we are, you know, inherently driven to do to order and classify and systematize the world around us. But I think as we go on and on, we, I guess, become more and more aware that nature is messy and unruly and doesn't conform to whatever boxes we want to try and put it in. And that maybe some of the structures that we try and impose upon this extremely diverse amalgam of things that exist on our planet is inadequate to represent that diversity. 
I'm interested in, in exploring what it means to bring your whole self to science, your whole self, your queer self, your scientific self, bringing those ways of being in the world together. Ryan, when did you start to understand your queer identity? I think I first started to realise that I was queer when I was in my mid-teens. So I think it was fairly early for me. And I guess in high school, that was... I'm pretty sure the entire English department knew before I did. Um, (laughs) Isn't it often often the way? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's like, yep, the English music drama kid, of course. Why did bisexuality and and then being non-binary make sense to you? I think in my entire life, my, I've lived in in-betweens, you know, I'm, I'm mixed race, so I'm half Australian, half Filipino. So even from birth, I was living between two cultures. Bisexuality sort of just made sense to me in that, you know, there is no strict either or, you can be both. In terms of gender as well, I never really connected with traditionally masculine things. Mm-hmm. And I was raised a lot by women in my life. And so these concepts of, you know, gender and masculinity and what one is supposed to do never really made sense to me. You know, moving into my 20s and even pursuing like an operatic career, Mm. I think, and that's a, a profession where these notions of gender and gendered performance are so tightly ingrained with um, your success as a performer. So I think I was much more driven to perform a strict gender identity throughout that period. But I think that was possibly another reason where I sort of fell away from it as an art form and that it is so rigid in that respect. And as an art form, people are very reticent to, to change or adapt with it and adapt to, you know, mm. contemporary times and mm. even things in with respect to its uh, conception of gender, um, violence, race even. How are we still getting away with yellow face in this day and age? It's, it's beyond me, but people will still so ardently defend it. So as a person of, you know, Asian background, it's just baffling to me. Yeah. But coming away from that and moving away, you sort of realise that you don't have to perform gender and you figure out what's authentic much more to you. comfortable and authentic, yeah. Mm. It's um, interesting to me that there you were in the performing arts and, and you know, my, a, a stereotype would be, well, that's a very inclusive environment, it's a queer-friendly environment, and yet you were turning away towards the sciences. Have you found the sciences to be a more queer-friendly, queer-inclusive environment? At least for the most part, yeah. I um, I feel extremely lucky at um, the ANU in my you know department. Everyone is so lovely and supportive and collegiate, and it's a fantastic um, research environment to be in. And I do think that there is a lot of queerness in science. In a lot of scientists that I've met have been queer. I do wonder whether it has something to do with mm. the overlap between science and neurodiversity as and queerness in that mm. neurodiverse people are statistically more likely to be queer as well. And I think also in the sciences, there are statistically more likely to be more neurodivergent people. So many interesting overlaps. And I, I love the way in so many ways and so many arms of your life challenge and deconstruct 
binary thinking, being bisexual, biracial, non-binary, an opera singer who's now doing their PhD in science. You know, you are fully occupying the fluid possibilities of being. I wonder what that feels like for you. Uh, it's wild. <laughs> I mean, it just it just means that I, I feel like, you know, you're free to inhabit a space that um, isn't confined by any other person's conception of what one should be. I think you're free to be who you are. And I think being more comfortable in, in that identity and just expressing who you are authentically has led to, I don't know, much more authentic connections with people across the rest of my life. How do you reflect on how stepping out of binary thinking in so many different ways might shape your doing of science, the way you approach scientific investigation? I think just that challenging of that strict binary notion, you know, rejecting the idea that things strictly have to be either or, you know, things are much more of a gradient. Are they... You were halfway through university, I think, when you came out. How did that decision go for you? How did that experience go for you in terms of your fellow science students and and colleagues? Uh, It was very natural. I I had no idea I was gay until I found out, um, more or less. (laughs) My first experience uh, made me realise that, okay, that's it. I understand now. (laughs) Um, I always found it hard back then and ever since, it's hard for us to tell other people, look, I'm gay or I'm queer, when you don't have a partner. Mm. It's, it's much, much easier to say, yeah, this is my partner, I'm bringing him. And so this is what happened later on when I, at that time, I didn't have a, a stable partner, but then I went to the US uh, to do part of my PhD. I met someone very special then. And back uh, back home in Paris, where my PhD supervisor was, I told her one day, look, I just need to tell you, I've, I've met someone very special in the US. Um, his name is John, and yeah, he's my partner. Mm. I think coming out to my PhD supervisor was uh, the final break to make it through as a, as a gay person, an openly gay person in the lab. But it was also important for her to know what my life was going uh, through at that time. I was moving back and forth between California and Paris. I think I needed uh, her blessing to go back to the US and finish writing my thesis while not being in Paris. And so it was important that she knew what the context was. And I certainly didn't want to make up a lie or anything. So she was she was very very helpful. At a certain point, though, you d- you decided to be one of the first to put up a profile on the the growing international website, the fabulous website, five hundred queer scientists. What was that about for you? Because that was a different kind of decision, wasn't it? To really publicly uh, merge your gay self, your queer self, and your scientist self. I wanted to help other people. In my world of botany, I've been surrounded from the beginning by role models, so very famous botanist figures who have been openly gay in the lab for many, many years. Mm. Uh, There's evidence this doesn't happen in every field, in every country. And so I wanted to contribute by putting myself out there so people know, okay, it's okay. It's okay to be out and gay. Uh, Nothing bad will happen to you. You know, it, I, I'm openly gay to my friends and colleagues in the same uh, lab, but when you go to 
conference, you don't tell everyone, hello, I'm gay. And this was a way to, to let it out. And there's a lot of evidence that it is really important, actually. Let's explore that a bit more, that importance of what can happen when you bring your whole self to science? Because some people might ask, well, how is it relevant that you're gay? How is that relevant to your science? Uh, and why is it important to know? Science is scientists and it helps other scientists see the human part of other scientists. So for the same reason that it is actually interesting and important for many of our colleagues to tell us about their wives or kids, it is important for us to be acknowledged for who we are. I think I'm connecting better with many other scientists around the world uh, by letting this out. And I don't need to bring it up, but I feel I'm entirely myself because anyone who wants to know, they'll find out. Yeah. And science is a, a massively creative pursuit. I mean, you really have to let free up your mind, free up your brain to do the thinking, to do that creative thinking. And I do wonder if, if a scientist isn't able, it has has to repress a whole part of themselves. Can they fully express themselves as a scientist? Yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly, you know, when you're comfortable with yourself and this is not an issue, then you're, you just have more time for science and being productive. And so, but it depends, you know, it's a whole spectrum and there, there are people for whom it doesn't matter and there are people who are still suffering uh, a, a very closeted existence for whatever barriers, cultural or original barriers they have experienced that are uh, making it harder for them. And um, yeah, just mm. just opening up and being embraced by your colleagues helps so much. This is what I experienced here more than any other place in the world. When I first came as a postdoc to the Botanic Gardens in Sydney, uh, people were so open about this that it made me so comfortable and that's why I'm back here now. <laughs> Truly liberating in every sense of the word, intellectually and, other, and personally right. and professionally by the sounds. That's right. Uh, Ryan, I wonder what you think about that idea of being able to bring your whole self. I've been interested in the rise and rise of the growing queers in science movement, uh, which seems to be very much about that, about bringing your whole self to the work the work that you do in science. I completely agree. Like I, uh, I was initially actually a bit apprehensive towards, um, in you know, taking up this space, queer space, as somebody who ostensibly on paper presents, you know, cishet in in that you know, I'm married to a woman. So I felt almost a bit bad taking oh. up queer space um, as someone who doesn't appear that way and can very easily hide, but. Yeah, that's complex, isn't it? Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, Hervé um, very nicely convinced me that that story of, you know, being a bisexual person, um, despite being married to a woman, is still a valid and important story to tell and is an important identity to represent. And it is an identity that is historically erased and not represented. So I thought maybe it is important for me to, you know, inhabit this space and, and be visible so, yeah, I've been definitely trying to be a bit more visible and present and express that queer identity more visibly in recent history. Yeah, the challenges never cease, do they? <laughs> it's fascinating to me. I mean, this strange assumption that the world 
and everything in it, people, are binary. You know, science has, has played an interesting role in, in perpetuating binaries in, in biology and perpetuating stereotypes about what is biologically natural or not. And I wonder how you both view the complicity of science, and I would say especially biological sciences, in feeding prejudice, in feeding queer phobia, in feeding homophobia, in feeding sexism over the, the centuries. Eve? That's such a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> Few answers. I mean, scientists, science is, uh, is, is highly imperfect. It keeps changing. We keep getting better and better at it. Uh, but science is also done by humans, and humans are extremely imperfect. And I believe they're also getting better and better and <laughs> smarter. And so um, it's a constantly evolving world. I can't really answer the question and uh, either accuse or defend my former scientist colleagues <laughs> who, who have done all the harm that's very uh, strategic <laughs> that you're pointing at but I'd, I'd like to say that nowadays science is uh, really helping queer people to understand who they are be who they are and open up everyone's minds and in fact it is a scientist who started this I think Kinsey was one of the first to recognize that uh, sexual orientation was not a binary. <laughs> Everyone is very different and there might be some people who identify entirely as homosexual, other people entirely as heterosexual, but there's so much in between and that we're recognizing a lot better now. We need to engage with the idea that science is a human pursuit and science engages with human society or else you wind up with really adverse consequences like people abusing science and the scientific method as they have in the past in terms of in a biological context with respect to you know things like eugenics and even now with people abusing science to try and justify transphobia or homophobia and um, things like that. Yeah, there's this idea that science is is neutral and dispassionate and emotion-free, that the identity of scientists shouldn't matter and I, I wonder what you say to that. I think that science is full of bias all over the place. I think it is inherently so. We can try as we might to conceive of it as an objective and cold, rational thing, but it's still human and it's still subject to human foibles. I was just thinking it's, it's very hard for scientists to acknowledge publicly how imperfect and human science is. Isn't it? Some detractors, that's so interesting to me. Some, some detractors might say, well, that's why scientists are always wrong. Yeah. But I think what makes science so special compared to dogma is science self-corrects all the time. And so we keep improving. We keep acknowledging mistakes, including our own. When there's evidence of cheating uh, in publishing a paper, these papers are retracted. And I think the best scientists in the world and, and some of the most scientists in the world are, are also the most humble ones, the ones who always recognize they could have gotten wrong and look forward to new answers from other people or themselves. What excites you about the, the Queers in Science movement that really is building across the world and across Australia and being celebrated uh, in World Pride this week? I think building that network has made me a better scientist and a better queer. It's opened me to so much more diversity of people and mindsets than I had been exposed to. 
and I found amazing friends actually <laughs> along the way. So it's been an amazing way for me to get to know many other people and make them know each other, develop all these interactions and just be all better allies for each other. And speaking of allies, what does a, a, a queer-friendly, queer-safe scientific environment look like, lab look like? I think it's a lab where we do speak about diversity. We, we actually make everyone feel welcome for who they are, whether they're queer or members of any other uh, minority. A lab that is safe for queers should be the same lab that is safe for people of uh, different ethnical backgrounds, people of different religions, people of different abilities, of course, people of all genders. Mm. Uh, it never is just a queer safe space by itself. And, and Ryan O'Donnell, thank you so much for joining me on Science Friction and happy World Pride. Thanks thank so you. much, Thanks Natasha. Both botanists, both involved in an evening with 500 queers in science, happening over two nights, in fact, Monday the 20th and 21st of Feb as part of 2023 World Pride. I'll link to where you can book to get along to those if you happen to be across in Sydney. Next week, more queer conversations on the show. Share the Science Friction podcast with your friends on social media everywhere. Hashtag World Pride 2023. I'm Natasha Mitchell. The show is produced by me with Erica Voles. Sound engineer this week, Tim Simons. Enjoy the celebrations. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.